On this episode of the Physio Foundations podcast, I'm speaking with Associate Professor Kellyanne Bowles from the Department of Paramedicine at Monash University, and we're going to talk about the paramedic profession and how Kelly and her team train paramedics to be professionals and what we can learn from this rapidly growing and rapidly developing profession. Welcome back to the Physio Foundations podcast, where we talk about the knowledge and skills that provide the foundation of expert clinical practice. So on this episode, we're going to take a wider view at the physiotherapy profession by speaking to someone from another profession, um, someone I get to work closely with in my role at Monash University Physiotherapy and more widely in the university. And that is Associate Professor Kellyanne Bowles. So Kelly's the acting head of the Department of Paramedicine at Monash University Kelly's the Director of Research of our School of Primary and Allied Healthcare. And you're probably thinking, well, okay, that's great, but why am I interested in talking to Kelly on the Physio Foundations podcast? And if you look up Kelly, and I've got some information in the show notes and you can do that, you'll see that Kelly has an exercise science, a biomechanics background, and works heavily in paramedics, education, and research. So why do I want to talk to Kelly on this podcast? Well, the, the reason is, because Kelly has a really interesting professional background and she's applied her foundational training in exercise science and biomechanics in a range of health and medical settings. And then she's worked with a, a lot of different people, a whole bunch of different um, types, professions and fields. And this brings with a lot of interesting perspectives that I want to tap into today. And the key theme I want to tap into is the theme of the developing profession and the physiotherapy profession continues to develop and and the paramedics profession is rapidly evolving and developing and Kelly's played a, a leading role in this development um, in research and education and clinical practice for a number of years at both the national and the international level. Um, so that's why I want to bring Kelly on. So without further ado, Kellyanne Bowles, welcome to Physio Foundations. Thanks, Luke. Thanks for having me. And I was saying before we press record, look, sometimes you um, you have a topic and you say, well, I have to get a guest to talk to this topic. And sometimes you have a person and I really have to speak to this person. And there's 50 things we can speak about and we'll come up with a topic. And I think yeah. the topic's good. I'm looking forward to diving into it. But how are you, first of all? I'm very well, thanks. Um, getting back into it. Semester starts next week. So it's always an interesting time. How did you find time to talk to me? You oh, are, so you're director of paramedicine, director of, of research in our school, which covers um, multiple departments, teaching, supervising PhD students, other things you'll probably tell us about. Yeah, there's a bit of bit of time management. I think it's it's priorities, and I must admit, I think these sort of podcasts where yeah have an opportunity to chat to someone, as you've sort of said, outside of maybe your professional area as well. Um, I think it's always great to make sure you do prioritise that. To be fair. Yeah. It's easy to say no to, but when you prioritize it, you know, it, it, it is important to do. So, yeah. So thank you. So this is the 40th episode of Physio Foundations, and it's a really good opportunity to take a broader look at what I'm doing in the podcast, but more importantly, in the profession. And so the goals of the podcast are to explore the foundations of expertise. So yourself and other experts in professions and in the physio profession, but also the foundations that grads and students are building and also of the profession itself. So, I mean, you've mentored me in my career. You're in an ideal position to 
to sort of look externally at my career and give me some tips, but also to look at the physio profession as a whole. So I want to talk to you about your foundations, your background, and then we'll get into your perspectives of looking at our profession and it should be fun. Sounds good. But before we go, let's, let's introduce you and talk about your foundation. So um, I've missed plenty in my introduction there. I just sort of skimmed over the surface. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you, your interesting career so far and where it's going and for sure. where you're going? Yeah. So I think when I, um, I suppose you can take it all the way back to when I was at school, I always wanted to be an elite sport biomechanist and you would sort of see things and look to be fair at that time in Australia, you probably didn't have too many people having that sort of role. Um, but I was always fascinated what they were doing at the Australian Institute of Sport and had a huge passion for that. Um, and so when I was, I, I suppose I was probably quite pedantic, I looked at the best sort of human movement, as it was called then, course that I could do, um, which took me to Wollongong, which was a fantastic opportunity to you know, sit at a beautiful beachside uh, place <laughs> as well as study at a fantastic university. Um, and from there we had a unit where you know, you had to engage in something outside of the university. So I was lucky enough to um, touch base with the people down the biomechanics department at the AIS and spent the semester there on a project um, and then followed that up doing what they called at that time their postgraduate scholarship. Um, and I really enjoyed it. And like that was my absolute dream, I think, when I was 15 years old to work in elite sports biomechanics. So to be able to do it was kind of nice. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So AIS, Australian Institute of Sport and Wollongong on the east coast of beautiful place, east coast of Australia for our overseas listeners. And so there's a, there's a story if you're doing undergraduate and you're slogging through some things and you're doubting yourself and what am I doing? My friends are having fun and I'm doing a 40-hour week here. Um, that's something you were dreaming about doing since you were 15, yeah? yeah so yeah. it wasn't something you just thought, oh, what am I going to do when I finish school? That was a pathway you'd set up. Most definitely. Yeah. Yep. And that's, so it's, it's high level. So what was so fun and, and fulfilling about that? I mean, it's, it sounds great, but specifically what's, what's so good about that job working it was the at that level? If I can be fair, you yeah. didn't know what was sort of coming in. And then even when I was at the AIS, you would work with, um, you know, track and field athletes one day, the next day we'd, and I'm not sure if, you know, your listeners have seen the great photos of that biomechanics lab in Canberra. It's very impressive. Mm. And we would literally be set up for athletics one day. You'd be set up for cycling the next day. We'd have everything in the pool. You'd be working with the swimmers. Um, so it was incredibly unpredictable, which for me, and I'm, maybe not for everyone, that's what I really liked. You didn't know what you were doing from one day to the next pretty much. Mm. And Jody had that same answer to the same question when she spoke about her so Jody mm -hmm. Dakey, a few episodes ago on the podcast, spoke about working in elite sport and traveling the world. And as certain personalities are suited to that thriving with unpredictability. No yeah. doubt. And, and if you do don't it. need to sleep, then they're great people to work with. Right. <laughs> That's what we did. We and World Championships for the swimming was an example in Perth a fair few years ago that, you know, you need to work around the athletes' time. So they would do heats in the mornings, finals in the afternoon or evening. We would have to analyze all the races literally overnight drop everything off so the coaches would have it the next morning so they have the information for the next heat um, and we did that for pretty much 10 days straight so running on about four hours sleep a night yeah wow yeah. <laughs> and then the last night you'd have to put them together and this weren't just for australian coaches we were doing it for international coaches too so putting together all that information um in a big booklet at the end so they'd take that from that meet and, and be able to work with it but 
yeah, it was it was a really exciting time. Um, but then probably the other side of it for me is I maybe felt a little bit that it was got to a point where it wasn't giving me everything also that I wanted. Mm. So it was great to work with the elite athletes, but I think I thought I reckon I could do something that worked with more than just the elite athletes, and I thought it might have been a bit more fulfilling to sort of broaden my scope a little bit. So that was, and that's sort of a key part of your story, isn't it, where you went? So what what happened next? What did you do to help fulfil those other parts of your professional yeah. training? Well, my PhD supervisor and a few of your listeners might know of um, Julie Steele just from everything that she's done in, you know, knee uh, knee injuries and, and things like that. She's an unbelievably internationally well-known uh, biomechanist um, and she's who I'd spent time with in my undergrad. I, I contacted her again and I sort of said, you know, I think I need to do further training. I think I might look at a master's. Um, and I was when I was at the Australian Institute of Sport, they did a small project then for Burley, who makes sports bras. Um, and it became really apparent that, you know, people were not exercising because they didn't have very good breast support. And for me, that was thought, gosh, it's not about, you know, necessarily winning the race. It's actually about being able to do something to keep people active, you know. Mm. It doesn't have to be high-tail stuff all the time. And so that's when I went back to Wollongong um, and followed my sort of postgraduate both started as a master's and it went into a PhD um, and ended up, it was never the plan, I'll be honest. I don't know if most people like that. That wasn't the plan. I was just going to do a master's, but was fortunate enough to get a scholarship and rolled into a PhD and um, and then, yeah, ended up doing this whole PhD on sports bra design, which was quite different. <laughs> and you weren't expecting to do that, no doubt. No. When you were, when you were 15 or when you were <laughs> no. in that role in high-end sports biomechanics. No, not at all, not at all. But um, it, it, to me... You know, we did different studies during the course of the PhD. It was about, you know, can we just make this better so people can have an enjoyable quality of life and being able to go for a, a walk with friends, a run with friends, you know, just a, quite different from that elite sport idea. Mm. Again, another parallel with Jody's other episode, which was so Jody talked about um, her change from working with high end elite athletes yeah. and then r- realising that, simple solution the very important more public health solution of helping um you know with physical activity and the women who are simply not exercising because of incontinence yeah and, you know the same there's a parallel there that very much so losing, much missing so. out on physical activity and exercise because of bra fitting so what, what did you get what did you solve with your research did to help people yeah, so we looked at sort of design stuff, um, mainly noting that, you know, it comes and, and some solutions are pretty simple in a way that if you actually went and got fitted professionally for your bra, that's a, that's a big thing to start off with because most of the things that females don't like about their bras were probably linked to the fact that the bra was poor fitting. Um, a lot of we looked at uh, we had great sensors, so we actually measured pressure under the bra strap. Um, so a lot of people would sit there and go, well, you know, that's a really uncomfortable thing when I'm trying to exercise. And we also had some people sit there and say, well, I don't want to wear a sports bra because they're too restrictive. And if I was doing exercise, I can't breathe in properly. So we did maximal and submaximal exercise testing with different ranges of bras and actually found out, again, if you were fitted, the sports bra actually made no difference to your lung capacity and 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 things like that. So it was quite good in a way to look at the way that we sort of set some bras up. So we worked um, uh, with Burley with that, and it was more about yeah you know, trying to get that education to get people fitted. Mm, yeah, that better public knowledge and education. 
Mm. It's not just the data, but then you can feed that data back into the industry and say, well, we've, you can quantify where the pressure is and the, that doesn't have an effect on breathing. And That's right. Mm. It's so, the hard yards behind the scene of that research and development. And this is yeah. academic research, isn't it? Feeding back into industry to say, well, this is what's needed, but we have data for that. Yeah, it was probably, I was fortunate. It was a good time, I think, when Australian funding really liked industry to work with universities, but they didn't put too much pressure on the industries to put a lot of money forward because that's sort of maybe a little bit of the problem now is that I think you get best research when you don't just do it in the university. If you go out and work with clinicians or you go out and work with companies and things like that, but that's really hard financially for for everyone, to be fair. Um, so it was at a bit better time for for industry then to work with universities than what it is now, I think. Right. Yeah, that's, that things change so quickly, yeah. don't they? Yeah. <laughs> so that that's really interesting. And then then paramedics. We've been talking about paramedics in the introduction and the listeners yeah. are wondering, and, and then what happened next? Yeah. So now- I suppose then, you know, and I'm sure maybe some of your listeners at different stage, you know, life also takes over. I had a family we moved to be back closer to, to family because we then had children, um, you know, juggling multiple roles. And, and I mean, you know, this like you're trying to do everything at once. Um, probably took a bit of time out. It took me a very long time to do my PhD. I'm quite happy to ad- admit that to people. I think people do a PhD and they feel like they're dragging the chain. I'm quite, it, mine took me 10 years. Um, I had three children during that time, which is probably not the smartest thing. But anyway, um, and so I did. It's a, a very few- important thing. Yeah, it is important. Let's not, let's not downplay that effort (laughs) of of getting a PhD done and have starting a family. That's awesome. Yeah. And so probably took a few opportunities and, and learnt maybe to think about the skills I had rather than a title that I had. And that's probably the most honest thing to say. Mm. I then realized I had some research skills. So, you know, I, I went and worked at the Cancer Council for a year in their health behavioural unit and did a lot of statistics for a year, which was interesting. Um, that took me to work at uh, Melbourne Uni um, and still, you know, it, it was a recommendation from my PhD supervisor and worked there on a, on a project, a big project for four years. Um, and then to be fair, when I finished my PhD, my husband said to me as a joke, does every person in Australia have your CV? Because I felt like I did actually send my CV to everybody. Right. <laughs> but, you know, it's Why not? fortuitous and you have to put yourself out there, you know. Mm. Um, and again, a fortuitous conversation with who Terry Haynes, who's currently our head of school. Um, and he had a, a vacancy he needed fill. And, you know, that was, I think now... Um, nearly nine years ago, which is unbelievable. Um, And again, that's what I did for a while. So I worked with him, worked with lots of different health clinicians trying to get that research skills up when I was based through Monash Health. And then from there, when a position became available in paramedicine, it was using the skills I had. So that's skills in research education. So you built your experience and your skills strategically. When you talk of your story and and you've reflect back on it you can make mm. a coherent story there's sometimes just luck and change yeah. and sometimes you get sick of things and you need more but you you've, you have been fairly strategic in building up different skills in, in you know, mm. clinically and in, in research in stats um, and lots of career capital of, of knowing people a lot of cvs sent out yeah so there's a quick segue here to or a quick um side track here to if we're thinking about young professionals who are in their jobs 
and they so there's sort of some sort of advantage of working in, in different places, but there's some disadvantages of just getting bored and jumping ship. And there's probably um, a unfair generational typecast of the of the young professional or the, the young person who's just jumping from job to job and not happy and looking for fulfilment and needs to stay in things for longer. But I think that sometimes that's a bit unfair because I look back on my career and my what I did and that's all added up really in a healthy way. And I moved around lots of different jobs. So how do you think we balance that when you're when you're young and looking for opportunity and building yourself up? I think it is about thinking about your skills. And I mean I mean, my own kids are getting older now, are heading into university themselves and, and finishing sort of high school. Um, and I think we get fixated on titles and it's probably easy to say, you know, you're a physio, you're a paramedic, you're this. Right. Um, and, yeah, that, you know, that, that helps you get a job and it helps you define yourself. But I'm sure you could have 10 physios in a room and they all have very different skill sets. Mm, and it's yeah, about definitely. really thinking about your individual skill set and not, you know, not seeing it as a failure if you turn around and say, mm, maybe that's not the path for me anymore. I, I might, I, I've done my training, I've worked for a couple of years, I'm not really loving this anymore. But think about the parts of what you do that you love and what's the skill set that you think that you've got and how can you adapt that into your next sort of professional step? Because I think that's the thing. I We also sort of sit there and go, wow, I'm not an elite sports biomechanist anymore and I don't think it's that I failed at it it's just that I picked the bits of it that I liked and I worked out the skills I liked and I managed to put it into something else and I think that's probably a, a good way to think about things mm, skills more than titles mm. yeah I think so the title yeah. is the tool it's really a reflection of the, the tool you used to get your training and your mm. knowledge and and then there's so much career development you do through your work and building connections with people and so skills yes and you think of physios mm. must be some of the best communicators really to be able to have that ongoing relationship with patients and develop that so if you sort of think about that if that sort of pathway or you have a change how great are your communication skills in that how good are your yeah. time management because you if you're working in clinics you know you have to fit so much into the space of an appointment these are all skills that you probably don't think that you have that you probably have that you can roll into the next thing. Yeah, that, that has come up so many times in conversations on this podcast, that importance mm. of not just learning robotically the things to say and the things to ask and the checklists, but how your personal development, your life mm. feeds into your professional development, how you can hold a conversation with somebody and, and listen yeah. to them and not just get lost in your own head. Yeah. So let's, that, there's my segue. Uh, what, do you, what do you think? So I ask all the guests that come yeah. on here, um, as so it's mainly been physiotherapists. So I've been asking them, what are the most important knowledge and skills for a physiotherapist? What if we get away from knowledge and skills and, and, and ask you the same question just about the profession? What do you see as really, what, what are the attributes that make a really good physiotherapist? And that could be a clinician, but it could be more broad than, as you said, the, the title. Yeah. More about the skills and the person and and they're building their career. What do you think makes somebody successful in yeah. that profession? Oh, God, there's a couple of things. You know, the real research nerd in me would start with, I think that it's actually really important that every clinician understands research and it doesn't mean that you actually have to be the one to run all the trials and things like that. 
But, you know, if you really want to give, if, if you're working clinically and you really want to give your patients the best clinical care, or if you're working in an academic setting and you want to make sure your students get the best academics um, and then the most up-to-date education, understanding research so that you can actually apply it. I think mm. that is an invaluable skill. And then I think the way we're going in life, this ability to collaborate with other health professionals and have those relationships outside of, um, you know, outside of your hospital, outside of your clinic, you know, I think that is imperative. From a, I can put the paramedicine hat on for a second. We are seeing huge changes in the profession in paramedicine and community paramedics in Australia is something that we don't really have yet, but really I think in the next couple of years will change a lot. And that is all about collaborative care. You know, it's all about conversations, including the patient in the conversation, so not leaving them out, but all those conversations that look at things coming from multiple angles. And so that, you know, can the physio speak to the paramedic? Can they also speak to the OT and the speech therapist? And it's about that multidisciplinary collaborative teams. Um, and that comes down to communication skills, it comes down to seeing something from somebody else's point of view that you hadn't thought of, you know. Um, and I think that's a key to, to someone who's a great clinician. Mm, life experience plays such a big role in that. Mm. But it's not to say that if you're a student or you've just graduated that you don't have an enormous amount of those skills within you that you need to tap into and that's where practice comes in as well. How in your, uh, with your undergraduate um, paramedicine students who go through at Monash, how do you develop professionalism and communication and all those important mm. and when I don't even like soft skills yeah we'll get rid of the term yeah we did those, those fundamental foundational skills and communication and and, and professionalism as a, a younger profession so mm. it's um so paramedics for the background for people paramedicine has well, why don't you tell everyone the, the quick yeah, background and of the profession if you've got international listeners too in australia mm. you must have a bachelor degree to be a paramedic that is not consistent internationally although it's definitely coming that way so in australia um, our paramedics are registered health professionals now that's only happened in the last couple of years it's probably been about 20 years that they've run through with a bachelor's program but now it is a requirement in australia uh, you will not get a job as a paramedic unless you have a bachelor's um, and we're starting to see that roll out internationally, I suppose. Um, and then the other thing that we're seeing is our clinicians are then going on to do masters and things like that. Some of the clinical skills that our paramedics have are unbelievable. Um, when you look at it on an international scale, we don't have, especially in Victoria, um, we don't have, you know, all doctors on our helicopters. We have paramedics and that's because their skill set's so high. Um, but one thing that we do when you talk about our undergraduate students is our first year before we put them on the back of an ambulance, because we all know that would be very confronting, their placements involve going to childcare centres, going to special education schools, going to aged care facilities. So it's about them learning in a safe environment to communicate with the diverse people who are in our community. Mm. And it's it's far more well-rounded than just learning skills. Yeah. And they've got those really impressive, complex, life-saving skills, but those placements are so they can talk to humans from, a, from yeah. walks of life. That's exactly right. I mean, for example, we have placements in special education schools and if you have someone who is very frightened and intimidated by medical professionals and then you get called out as a paramedic and you even just want to put a blood pressure cuff on, that's a difficult thing to do if you can't communicate with somebody. Mm. And you probably don't discover that until 
you, you go to try it, Me it doesn't too. work, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> Which gets us into the territory that some of the territory in an earlier episode I've spoken to Narelle Dalwood about simulation and yeah. you, know, you have simulation in the paramedicine course as well and just, just until you try to put that blood pressure cuff on and realise you haven't communicated, yep. you won't really know. You assume that everyone understands what you're saying. and That's mm. right. So we've got to... The, the final thing I wanted to um, bring up was Ben Meadley. So Ben, yes. so we we work together as a so Ben Meadley's a, a flight paramedic. I thought we, he's I'm going to have him on the podcast in a couple of weeks, and it's a lot of fun because of the nature of what he does. So he's in helicopters, he's winching down into into open waters, he's hiking through snow and uh, you know exciting adventure stuff. But um, I was lucky enough to co supervise Ben's PhD with you. So yep. thank you, you and Ben. It was a really good thing to be involved with. Um, so tell us about Ben, just just briefly, just as, as sort of an introduction to um, to him for the next episode. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because Ben has an exercise science background before he did paramedicine, so he's always had that interest in in health and wellbeing. Obviously, paramedicine took it to a next level to um, to try to help people on that way. He um, he himself, you know. I remember having a meeting with him and he was taking, I just, he wasn't even there. I'm like, what's going on? And he goes, oh, I just smashed myself. I went too hard on my bike ride this morning. So definitely very much into his own sort of health and wellbeing. But I think probably, and, and I mean, he's not very egotistical, so I can probably say this, probably one of the most skilled clinicians that you would have internationally as a paramedic, like his ability to to do things. If you went into an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is the person that you want standing next to you from a clinical level, internationally respected, but also wanted to do something in his PhD that he felt could be really useful to a broader group. And, you know, he's very proud of his professional stance as a paramedic and wanted to give back, I suppose, to the profession. And so I think that sort of starting probably did some of the uh, best foundation research we've seen in paramedic health and wellbeing and really broad you know looking at the nutrition um, partner with others so as much as the sleep stuff wasn't in his thesis partnered with others with that looked at the exercise and took that real broad perspective on our really early um, paramedics in the first year of their job to see how we can make sure they do have a, a long and fulfilling career mm -hmm. and so obviously paramedic health um, is so important and there's there's some things that physiotherapists don't have to deal with like shit. Well, no, that's not necessarily true. There are some long hours, but mm -hmm. not that the hard shift work being on call and being pulled in at you know, two in the morning and, and everything they do. Um, so that aside, what can physiotherapists learn from the work Ben has done and you've done as a part of the paramedic health and wellness research unit that you and Ben have set up at, uh, at Monash. What can other professions learn from that? You've taken a, uh, really taking that on as the uh, as a priority, the well being of the professional themselves. Mm. And look, I, I'm involved in the first year in helping first year physio students understand the importance of looking after their own health from our health enhancement program. So there's a similar interest there. But what can we learn from paramedicine in all the work you've done? Yeah, I think it's really easy if you're a clinician to always put your patient first. And I think that's mm. why people are probably attracted to be a physio or a paramedic because they have this undying sort of want to help people, and that's fantastic. What we've tried to do, I suppose, with our look is to turn the focus a little bit to the clinician because, you know, you're not going to be very helpful as a physio if you yourself are injured or fatigued or, you know, all that sort of stuff. 
So it is about exactly what you say early on and we do it in our degree training our next level of health professionals to come out to, it's not being selfish to think about yourself. You actually will be a better clinician if you're healthy and you're working well. Um, so taking that time and putting that into your actual overall week or whatever, I think is pretty important. Um, and that's what we've tried to do and, and thinking about it from multiple aspects. I mean, physios would know from their training, everything's interlinked, you know, the food, the, um, the sleep, your mental health, your physical health, you know, having exercise involved in there, um, knowing that it's all a bit individualised, you know, what works for one doesn't work for another. I literally read one of my student's thesis, hopefully she's submitting any day, looking at cardiac rehab, uh, community cardiac rehab. And even that, you know, we have to set things up that work for the individual and we need to realise that we're all individuals, but don't feel you're being selfish as a clinician for knowing when it's important to take time out for yourself. Mm, it sounds obvious, doesn't it? But it's hard to do. It's hard Particularly to do. in some professions and some roles as well. So, so important to have a conversation about that. Yeah. 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 It sounds great. And then we always say that that's the best thing to do. But yeah, as you say, putting it into practice. And I think we do feel like we're being selfish if we take that time out for ourselves. But it's just changing that mindset that you're probably being a bit selfless because you'll make yourself better if you take the time out. Mm. Again, you could that's where your life experience comes in. Go and spend some time <laughs> with people who are genuinely selfish and you yeah. realise that going and looking after your health isn't selfish. It's something that's a part of your job. Yeah, very much so. All yeah. the effort that goes into and the money that you and the time that you put into training yourself mm. and, and all the, the resources and then you want to have a long career. That's right. You don't want to be doing it for a couple of years and burning out because you could have taken simple steps to looking after yourself. Very much so. so I think then, yeah. And having those discussions with other yeah, other clinical partners, you know, don't be scared to speak to the dietitian and sort of say, oh, I haven't been able to do this. And we know paramedics are terrible for it. And I'm sure physios who work in a hospital are the same, you know, you're running crazy. So what do you do? You go to the vending machine and just get a, a chocolate bar out because that'll keep you going all afternoon because you haven't had time for lunch. That's not the end of the world. But, you know, if that is your actual stable lunch every day, that's mm. not going to end up well. Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> so, yeah. But, um, there's so much more I want to talk to you about, but that's it for today because you're a very busy person and when you want something done, ask the busy person. So I really appreciate you coming on and helping us as a profession, as a physiotherapy profession, just get some insight into the pathway you've taken, but also what paramedicine is doing and what we can learn from that. So do you have any final thoughts or anything else? Uh, not really. I think this is great to have chats outside. I think um, I think we do it with our students at uni. We could probably do it even better with our students at uni, get them to have conversations and, and start it up. But, you know, the next generations of physios that come through, you'll get to dictate what your profession is by your own sort of stance and behaviour. So... Um, yeah, just realise that you guys are the ones who are in control, I suppose. Yeah, it's a good, really good thought. And on that one, it would be good to get some students. Well, I've only, we only just started this podcast, but I'm planning to get some students on as well, get their perspectives. Hmm. But you've got to grow the thing. So. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and speaking to you, you mentioned Terry Haynes, our head of school. There's another guest I've got on my list. Ben Meadley's coming up soon. And so there's some really interesting people with perspectives that you know, are really important to hear. So. Thanks, Kelly. I really no worries, enjoyed Luke. the conversation. So, <laughs> everyone, thanks for joining us as well. If you made it this far, um, thanks very much for your uh, for listening, and make sure you share the episode with someone. Like I always say, because you know. 
they won't find it. It doesn't really come up. Actually, my name's fairly uncommon and there's not too many peritons who are physios. So if you search periton physio or at periton physio, I seem to have number one on Google. So that's really good. So you can find this stuff easily if you're looking for it. Um, tag me in at periton physio or at Luke Periton, Twitter or other social media. And we'll leave it there. So thanks very much, Kelly. No worries, Luke. Thanks. So until next time, this is Kelly and Luke wishing you all the very best with your studying, professional development and lifelong learning.